Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Goodham and myself try to do without Pastor Brett Bow as we talk about the theology of the two kingdoms. Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran. My name is Pastor Brett. Well, wait a minute. I guess I'm Pastor Brian Ricky. Where's Brett? Brett was unable to connect. We have, as odd as it may seem, uh, the summer months are the hardest months to coordinate for pastors. We've got vacations are usually taken during the summer, which is no surprise to anyone. It's also camp speaking circuit time for people. Uh, and so I know in a couple months I'm, or a couple weeks, I'm going to be gone at a Bible camp. Uh, I think you're going and Brett are both going to the fly convention. The, I'm not going to fly this you're year. You're not going no. to fly. Wow. But uh, I know Brett is. Brett is. Got and we got a bunch. So uh, we looked at the schedule and to find a recording time for the three of us to keep perpetuating uh, the weekly episodes, it was impossible to fill a two or three week gap. So, so, so pastors actually are to choose their families over their ministry, <laughs> and and their completely unnecessary volunteer ministry at that. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're we're gonna fill in the gaps. We're gonna just have some fun with these couple episodes. Uh, without Brett, we're gonna we're gonna show you. Uh, in these couple episodes, just how valuable Brett is to the program, uh, to keeping us on track and, yeah, and focused. Because <laughs> I'm the wild card, remember? <laughs> but I want to interview you a little bit because you just got back from St. Louis. You're obviously in your demon program there. Yeah. And um, you were looking at some books that I actually had in a class that I had yep. about Christian ethics and um, sociology and, and that. And so I want you, I want you to kind of give me a synopsis of the week and just... Like, what was one of the one things that you walked away with, like, wow, I, I really maybe need to take that more seriously? Well, it's, uh, so my doctor of ministry class this time around, that's a residential class in St. Louis. I'm taking it through Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, and the class was on the two realms, or if, if people are familiar with the doctrine, it's usually called the two kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, the class uh, was based off of a book by my instructor, Dr. Joel Bierman who uh, just completed and released a book in May called Holy Citizens. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y, Citizens. And uh, uh, the class's purpose was to clear up errors Mm. in the teaching of the Lutheran doctrine of the two kingdoms or Mm -hmm. of the two realms, and also to do a synopsis in modern American Christianity of how other denominations and authors are handling uh, the Christian's relationship to ethics and politics. How close is Luther's two-kingdom principle to Augustine's? Is it is it fairly similar or is uh, it a little different? Or? Luther's is much more refined, and, and Augustine uh, was much more in favor of a transforming the culture perspective. Mm-hmm. And Luther uh, kind of moved away from that, and he was, the two realms really, was living in the culture uh, in the left-hand realm, where you're just a citizen, a law-abiding citizen, living in and under God's natural law. And left-hand is not liberal. Left-hand right. is not liberal. <laughs> and in the other side, 
uh, the Christian is living in the church in and under the gospel, which defines our relationship. And so really you can't understand the proper use or understanding of two realms unless you have a proper grip of the two kinds of righteousness, yeah. which is a lot of clarifying going on there. Uh, so we, we we surveyed some books that were helpful and unhelpful. I mean, they're, they're people we mostly theologically disagree with, so you have to take some of that with a grain of salt. So we looked at um, Christ and Culture mm-hmm. by uh, Richard Niebuhr yep. was the first one we looked at. Then we looked at two Reformed Theologians, Karl Barth, who yep. most people know about, he uh, wrote one, um, what was it called? Uh, Church and State yep. was a small essay that he wrote uh, kind of uh, protesting uh, what he thought was the mainline Lutheran doctrine of the two realms during Nazi Germany because yep. Barth lived yep. during Nazi Germany. He yep. had a lot of criticism for the Lutheran pastors that went along mm-hmm. with the Third Reich, which is fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, those, those people that did not have the spine to stand up and resist Hitler. Uh, we looked at Abraham Kuyper, Calvinist theologian, uh, his lectures on Calvinism and, and how he viewed the state. Uh, we looked at uh, Yoder, uh, John Yoder. The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus. Uh, we looked at a Lutheran uh, perspective of Two Kingdoms, which was a fantastic read. It was my favorite book of the whole whole week. Uh, a journalist named Yui Simonetto hmm. uh, called The Fabricated Luther. Yeah. And then we did um, James Davis and Hunter. Yes. Uh, to Change the World, which is one, one of, of your of books. Yeah, and then I've... we ended the class looking at Bierman's book, Holy Citizens. Okay. And w- what I find interesting is that if you look at Augustine's you know, Tale of Two Cities, yeah. uh, Calvin really latched onto that more so than Luther did. Yep. Um, and you see that he actually played out in Hunter's book. I, I, that's what I really appreciated about Hunter, um, even though he was from Harvard, which is began as, a, I believe, a Calvinistic mm-hmm. uh, school and seminary. But um, he really kind of undoes the modern, evan- you know, I guess the evangelical church approach where uh, we influence society kind of from the bottom up one soul at a time. And he really talks about how colleges and um, uh, political organizations, uh, as people, politicians that come from these Ivy League schools that are influencing people are really have a greater impact on how our nation changes. Yeah. Well, Hunter did, uh, for me, Hunter's uh, greatest value, uh, his book at least, was in refining what Niebuhr was writing about 50, mm-hmm. 60, 75 yep. years ago. So Niebuhr, if you haven't read Christ and Culture, it's a really heady, uh, almost clunky book because mm. he's so smart. Yeah, uh, Niebuhr's a, a, what we would refer to probably as a liberal theologian now, mm-hmm. uh, yep. higher critical relationship with the text at times, uh, so on and so forth. But he laid out five categories which most Christians fall into in the relationship between the church, which he refers to as Christ, and the culture, which is the world around mm-hmm. us. And uh, some of them we would resonate with, and some of them we would just reject outright. Um, you have uh, the the two opposite poles uh, is Christ apart from culture. It's the withdrawing from culture uh, we, we've seen that a little bit with Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, mm-hmm. a little bit. But these are the Anabaptist yep. theologians that yep. say you can't participate in civil government, mm-hmm. uh, so on and so forth. So that's the one end. Uh, the other end that Niebuhr lays out is... How, um, uh, Stanley Hauerwas would probably yeah, be Hauerwas. the one. Yep. Hauerwas is the big Anabaptist yep, theologian exactly. of our time. 
uh, or Yoder, who yep. we covered his book in the class. And then the other end, it's the Christ of culture, which is trying to reconcile the two at all the time. Yep. Uh, it's just how can what Jesus says just synthesize with what we're experiencing in our culture today? That's liberal theology at its finest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and everything in between, Niebuhr wasn't on either one of those two scales. Uh, it's the middle ones that he had a lot to say about. The Lutheran perspective he called Christ and culture in paradox. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, On the other side of that spectrum, he had Christ above culture, mm. which was, they were, it was kind of influencing culture, but two separate entities. Yeah. And in the middle, which is the American evangelical position, is Christ transforming culture. Yeah, exactly. Which means this addiction that the American church has to try to Christianize everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the big ones there that we would recognize now are like your James Dobson's. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the world, uh, that's probably the biggest one, and uh, the Christian right mm-hmm. that, that we've seen, especially active last 40, 50 years in America. Now, James Davison Hunter takes those five categories yep. and he distills it down to three. Yep. And, and it's really helpful because those five categories get really nuanced and there's a lot of flux. Yep. But, but Davison kind of aims his gun uh, at the Christian right, the Christian left, and what I call the Christian out of bounds, and that's the Anabaptists again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and he really says the way these three major groups of Christianity are interacting with culture and with power in mm-hmm. general in yep. society is incorrect. Yeah. Uh, and so he, he, the first two thirds of his book are kind of deprogramming what's going on in culture. Exactly. Yep. And then he talks about the solution to that. Although uh, you and I, in conversation before we started recording, said the application kind of leaves you a little bit wanting. You, you feel like there should be more of a prescription. And I, there's part of me that appreciates that because I think we want it easy. We kind of want it no. spoon fed to us and we kind of want this formula like, okay, tell me how to do it. Well, and, you know, have you ever had. Uh, to put a piece of furniture together without the directions. <laughs> well, you got to look at it and you got to examine it. And in this case, that's kind of what he does. He gives you all the tools that you need. He gives you the information you ha- you need. And quite frankly, I think that at that point, uh, each in each congregation is going to be different because each community is different wherever the congregation is at. And you need to honestly get on your knees, pray, and apply those principles within the construct of your congregation, within the community that your congregation is located and the characteristic of your congregation. Yeah, and with that in mind, Hunter's two big applications then or or suggestions to interact with both culture and with the power structures in society were one, to have a faithful presence. Uh, Faithful presence is a big idea. That is just being a faithful Christian in the world. Exactly. Not trying to make the world in your image, but to be a faithful Christian in the world. And to get there, you have to have formation or catechesis. And that's really why we're talking about this now, because this is what the podcast is all about. It's catechesis. And that's my big topic. It's yeah. you know, what I settled on. I will actually be doing my final project in my doctor of ministry program on catechesis. And if we talk about catechesis, I think a lot of people get the idea that, oh, it's just an academic pursuit. It's just about head knowledge, but it's not. It's always about application. You know, it's always exegesis, prayer, and application. You got to have the, all those three. And that was, I think, one of the wonderful contributions to of the Reformation is in seminaries that came out, mm-hmm. that there has to be biblical exegesis. There ha- it has to be saturated with prayer, and it has to have application in the life of the believer, or it is just an academic pursuit, and quite frankly, it's not the gospel. Yeah, and w- one thing we have to correct with that, though, is... We have this overly individualistic sense of Christian existence because yes. of American Christianity that we're 
outside the church. It's just me and Jesus, and I go to church. Exactly. Uh, but uh, because of that, we rejected this head knowledge thing, and mm-hmm. where the genius of Luther in recapturing catechesis for the church was saying, no, it starts with rote memory work. Mm. It's we can't teach the principles and how it impacts your life on a day to day basis without that knowledge being there. Yeah, you know, and I think we've talked about it uh, in a previous episode. One of the things we're trying to implement here at Faith for Confirmation is that before a student starts confirmation, they need to have the small catechism memorized. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of analogies, but you know, I was a hockey player. And the one thing that my coach just drilled into us in high school uh, was the basics, the principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get really good at the basics. And then whenever you encounter a situation, because your basics are so well honed and that there's just so a part of you and you got the muscle memory and everything else happening that you can adjust and adapt according to the basic fundamental principles of hockey and play the game really, really well. And I think there's a lot of correlation to that uh, as a Christian, to navigate the things of this world, to as you encounter different situations and different um, social environments and things like that. If you've got those basic fundamentals of Christianity down there in your heart and in your mind, it's going to be so much easier to navigate difficult situations in life. Yeah, you need to be constantly training yourself to think like a Christian so that you can act like a Christian. And there's a particular word that describes that, and that is? (laughs) Vocation, right? Vocation. Vocation is where it all happens, and that's where you interact with the left-hand kingdom. Again, one of the errors of the two kingdoms where it breaks down is us thinking that we, we, we spend some time in the left and some time in the right, but, but the real teaching of Luther on the two kingdoms or on the two realms is that the Christian uh, lives in both realms simultaneously. Mm. That's where one of the errors mm-hmm. can occur. Yep. The other error to occur is we have to remember that God is Lord and sovereign over both kingdoms mm-hmm. simultaneously. We, the error comes, if you think the left-hand kingdom, the temporal kingdom, uh, that, that Satan's kingdom and that God's kingdom is the church, yep. that's error. Uh, like I said, if you think you're dancing between the two kingdoms and only in one or the other, whether it's Monday through Saturday and then Sunday, yep. that's another error. But it's that you are in right and left simultaneously, and God rules over right and left mm-hmm. simultaneously. So as you walk away from this cl- these classes this week and all this wonderful information, you're a pastor. What did you walk away with that you can take and apply to your congregation? Well, really, again, this is a rediscovery of how to apply the law to a believer. Mm. Uh, we've, you know, we had, depending on how you do history, and I'm not a historical theology guy, so I'm going to be a little off on these. What we've had over the last 50 years or so, what's called the Luther Renaissance, mm-hmm. uh, a rediscovery of Luther's gospel teachings and especially the law gospel distinction. But what ended up happening is over the last 20 years or so, we've really fallen into what's called law and gospel reductionism. Yeah. Yep. And, and that's a huge problem because what you end up happening, even if you don't try, is law bad, gospel good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this flows from a, a theologian here in Minneapolis at Luther Sem called Gerhard Ferdy. Yes. Now, uh, yep. If people have heard of Gerhard Ferdy, they've likely heard of his decent book, called On Being a Theologian of the Cross, which yes. is his yep. commentary. I, ha- I actually have that book. Yeah, yeah so do I. I. First time I read it, I thought it was great, and then I started thinking about his implications, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's some huge problems going on. But in On Being a Theologian of the Cross, Ferdy does a commentary on Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. Now, first thing we have to recognize, Heidelberg Disputation for Luther is the early Luther. Yep. And so he's still doing this transition from Roman Catholicism. It 
probably has been made there, although depending on if you who you read, uh, Luther's full-on conversion uh, to being a Lutheran, I guess, yep. uh, happens either late teens, early 20s, depending on who you talk to. Uh, Heidelberg disputation is somewhere in the early 20s. Now, Ferdy really captures this uh, distinction between uh, being a theologian of the cross and being a theologian of glory. Yes. And, and that's really where pop theology has, has seized those things. Now, the Lutheran reductionists uh, kind of wanted to replace law and gospel with cross and glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the theologian of the cross is one who accepts suffering in the Christian life rather than looking to replace suffering with Christian glory, like a pro- prosperity gospel yep. movement. Yeah. Uh, but what ends up happening if you if you've come across a law gospel reductionist is you end up with grace without repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first problem, and then you have a bunch of people, a bunch of theologians, a bunch of pastors right now flaunting how sinful they are to demonstrate how much grace God can pour out in their lives, and that's really a problem. It's also totally counter. Um just totally wrong, according to Second Corinthians, as he burdened some people or troubled some people, as Paul said, but it led to repentance and, the, and that beautiful uh, returning to the cross. And we call, you know, I call it abiding sanctification, where you're abiding in Christ, mm-hmm. returning to the cross, returning to the faith of your baptism, uh, and just reminding yourself of the extravagant grace and mercy of God and allowing that to transform you, change you, and mold you. Uh, that you're not just stuck and and you know testing God and just basically keep on sinning that grace may abound and of course his answer is may that never be yeah that's Romans six and yeah. that's a, that's as as emphatic as you can say that phrase is how Paul says it and 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 so you you run into this problem where the final word the only word maybe I should say that the law has to say to you is the word of conviction of sins mm-hmm. uh, and that's false. And that's where they take that Romans ten four passage that Christ is the end of the law, mm-hmm. and they, that natural conclusion by misrepresenting that text is antinomianism, yep. where there's no uh, there's no aspect of the law that is in the life of the believer. But Paul says that's not true either. Well, he says in Romans ten four, if you're going to quote the whole verse, and then you're going to put it in its context yep. anyway. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Exactly. Uh, and so Christ is the end of the law because Christ has declared you. In Christ, God has declared you righteous according to the law. Mm-hmm. That That's Christ's active righteousness. He fulfilled the law for you in your place, and then he took the penalty for your sins on the cross. Yep. That's Christ's active and then passive obedience, and both of those are counted for you in justification. Clothed in Christ's righteousness. Clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's an alien righteousness, what mm-hmm. we talk about. Now we go back to the law, and we would recognize that the law functions in three different ways. The first function is the curb. We've talked about this, where it informs you what is in bounds and what is out of bounds. Mm-hmm. And that that's just the civil function, the speed limits, traffic laws, homeowners association rules. Kind of like the speed bumps on the side of the road, right? Yeah, exactly. You're getting a little off track in here. Yeah. yeah. It's exactly uh, it's a great way of looking at it. The second function of law, which is where the, the gospel, the law gospel reductionists get hung up with, is the mirror. 
Mm. is that it shows you your sin and it prepares you for the Savior so that you can receive forgiveness. Absolutely, we confess that function of the law. But there is a third function to the law in which the law guides you as a Christian and reveals to you God's will. And so, you know, to to repeat this again, uh, if someone were to tell you to go live in the gospel because you're forgiven, that's an empty phrase. It means nothing because the gospel doesn't tell you how to live. Is that what Paul means in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where he says, All scripture is breathed up by God, profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. There is that word again, that a ma- the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Yeah. And again, righteousness means to be rightly oriented. Mm-hmm. So justification means you are righteous before God. You are rightly oriented to God. The only way you're rightly oriented to God is by faith in Jesus Christ, because your sins have been forgiven, uh, because he took your place on the cross, he shed your blood, you've been cleansed, you've been forgiven. But as a Christian, we are also rightly oriented to our neighbor. We are horizontally righteous, and this is where the law comes back in. You live as a Christian under the gospel, Mm -hmm. but you live as a Christian informed by the law. The law tells you how to love your neighbor. And that's the application of the gospel. Yes. And so we do not want to leave that dimension empty or, or, or not pay attention to it. And that's, again, where two realms comes in. In the yep. realm, the right-hand realm, uh, the church, the realm of the gospel, you are rightly oriented to God, uh, because of the gospel, you receive that gospel at church through the preached word and the means of grace, the sacraments, and then you live your life in the temporal realm as a Christian, simultaneously uh, interacting with your neighbor, loving your neighbor, informed by the law, uh, and the law is God's word to you of how to love your neighbor and how to please him because this is the boundaries he's given you. And this is that transforming process that talk, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, uh, at, at the end of that in verse 18, uh, where we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Uh, because of the righteousness of Christ that dwells in the heart and mind of the believer through the transforming power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working uh, to really uh, work that transforming work. Yep. Excellent. Well, I think we can probably bring this one to a close. Any final thoughts? Well, we managed to survive one without Brett so far. Let's see if we can do it another time. Uh, and we just plead with Brett, we miss you. Come back, Brett. We'll, we'll get this. Uh, we'll get back on track uh, when you return. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. I like to close this by reading uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 16 and following. So that we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For these things that are seen, they're transient and temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com. Please join us next week as Pastor Jason and myself continue our discussion on Luther's theology of the two kingdoms. God bless you and have a great week.